Hello, I'm Eric Huang. You're listening to Saint Podcast, a podcast that explores the always fascinating and often controversial lives of the saints. This is a history and culture podcast that traces the origins of morality tales of the saints or hagiographies through feminist and queer stories, ancient legends and lore, art history, and pop culture. This season of Saint Podcast is dedicated to mystics, saints who had transcendental experiences with the divine. Over the next eight episodes, we'll meet saints who had prophetic visions of the future. We'll explore the legend of a nun who suffered from transverberation, literally a burning arrow of love that pierced her heart and entrails, and a peasant whose heavenly visions predicted victory as a warrior. Episode four in the Mystic series is about a saint who was born in the year 1181. He was a middle-class party boy who aspired to the upper-class sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle of an aristocrat, until a chance encounter with a leper changed him forever. His love for nature is commonly referenced, as are the bloody stigmata he bore on his body. The saint we know today, however, bears superficial resemblance to the man pieced together from historical evidence. This is part one of the story of Saint Francis of Assisi, the wayward stigmatic. Saint Francis is a very well-known saint. It's likely you already have a picture of him—a monk-like man in a burlap sackcloth, maybe with a hood, a rope for a belt. His head is shaved into a tonsure, that medieval haircut in which the top of the head is hairless, leaving a thin ring of hair like a halo, worn snugly. Just above the ears, Saint Francis is the son of a well-to-do textile merchant in Assisi, a walled commune in Italy that, in the 12th century, is part of a duchy of the Holy Roman Empire. We've encountered the Holy Roman Empire before. It's a massive Central European kingdom comprising Germany, Switzerland, and Austria, the Netherlands, half of France, and northern Italy. It's the European superpower of the day. The only power that could and does challenge the supremacy of the papacy in Rome. The name Holy Roman Empire is a nod to the ancient Roman Empire. Its rulers fancy themselves heirs to the glorious emperors of an idealized past. Francis isn't named Francis at birth. His mother, Pica de Berlaymont, who's from Provence, names him Giovanni, the equivalent of John after John the Baptist. His father, Pietro di Bernardone, nicknames his son Francesco, which means Frenchman or Frenchy, a term of endearment in reference to Pietro's love for France and his successful business there. It's in France where Pietro acquires the damasks, gold and silver textiles, velvets, and other expensive cloths and furs to sell in his shop back in Assisi. Young Francesco, or Francis, spends three years in school. Learning just enough Latin and maths to be useful in his father's business. Most of Francis's education is informal, and obtained while traveling with his father on business to France and Flanders. It's while on the road that Francis learns to speak Provençal, the language of southern France and the language of troubadours. Troubadours are roving showmen, composers of a genre of lyrical poetry that glorifies chivalry and courtly love. In the centuries to come, lyrical poetry would flower into multiple forms, 
including chivalric romances like the Arthurian legends. The songs of troubadours are wildly popular, comparable to a number one single everyone knows the words to. The Song of Roland, which is about a hundred years old when Francis is born, is one of the most enduring. The titular hero Roland is an unyielding warrior who sacrifices himself for the love of duty and God. He's the very model of Christian honor and finds glory in death. The tale would have been formative for Francis, who encounters numerous troubadours on his travels, as well as a motley crew of scoundrels, rogues, clerics, princes, and a riot of fascinating characters from all over Europe and beyond. Just imagine a young Francis enthralled by the people he meets, the stories of glory and adventure he hears, the sights in towns, wayside inns, and ports, and every experience is scored by songs of chivalry and glory, sung by troubadours. The late 12th century of Francis's youth is a time of change. It heralds the rise of a merchant class, which his father and family belonged to. Here's a passage from Reluctant Saint, Donald Spato's brilliant book, to set the stage. In 1182, a citizen of Assisi was legally classified in one of three groups. The Maiores, those of greater standing, essentially nobles, the Mediani, of middling importance, and the Minores, of lesser importance. However, the term Mediani was rarely used, and so there was only one practical distinction, whether or not a person was considered significant. With this demarcation came the inevitable struggles, and the Maiores, who indeed had more power, had to fight increasingly to maintain their social, political and religious dominance. The rising merchant class, also called burghers, threatened the previously unquestioned supremacy of the titled aristocrats. Though still a minority, burghers could make enough money to change their social standing and vie for the power, status, and privileges once only afforded to the so-called bluebloods. Young Francis is one of these aspirational wannabes. It's not enough to be the son of wealthy burghers. Francis dreams of being an aristocrat, a nobleman with a title, and estates. He half-heartedly helps his father in the textile shop. The only benefit is that it affords him access to the most fashionable and luxurious materials. According to a posthumous biography said to be written by a friend called The Legend of the Three Companions, Francis was, quote, so vain in seeking to stand out that sometimes he had the most expensive material sewed together with the cheapest cloth onto the same garment. Francis must have been a Beau Brummel-like figure, or maybe a new romantic, a dandy whose flamboyant sense of style was cobbled together from what he could find and afford. It gets him noticed. His new acquaintances soon discover that Francis's appeal is far more enduring than the unusual cloak he wears to a party. He is an enthusiastic performer of popular troubadour songs. He's indescribably charismatic, an indispensable quality that will serve him well in future. Francis is also generous, happy to spend beyond his means, or beyond his parents' means, to ensure everyone is having a good time. It's not long before Francis strikes up friendships with the sons of the most prominent noble houses. The wealthy lads of 12th century Assisi run around in social cliques called brigate, essentially fraternities. Academic André Vouchet describes an average night out with your Brigata brothers. 
Sexual games, muggings and rapes were part of the normal activities of these bands of well-to-do bachelors, and these co-fraternities of youths will even be accused, two centuries later it is true, of being gathering places for homosexuals. Francis is fully committed to these nightly outings. Due to his enthusiasm, the Brigata elects him as the head of their house, bestowing upon him the title Prince of Youths. Francis parties hard. He gains a reputation for organizing the best nights out, which he funds by spending his father's money to impress his much wealthier friends. One of the most notorious events organized by Francis occurs on the 13th of June, on the feast day of Saint Vittorino, a martyred bishop of Assisi, one of the city's patron saints. The annual celebration, like others throughout the year, is religious in concept, but executed more like a pagan bacchanalia. The civilized opening ceremonies and banquets end in bawdy songs, licentious brawls, mock sacrilegious acts, and also sex. Participants from every social strata indulge in the activities, from clerics to merchants, sex workers to nobility. One day, whilst working at his dad's shop, Francis sends away a beggar who had wandered in pleading for money. The incident weighs heavily upon him. He confesses to the young men in his brigata that he regrets his actions. If that poor man had asked for something from you for a great count or a baron, you would certainly have granted his request. How much more should you have done this for the love of God? This is a glimmer of the man Francis will become, but not quite yet. The seeds have been planted, however, and though it seems Francis is living his best life, he yearns for a purpose. Francis decides to become a knight and attain glory on the battlefield, just like the aristocratic heroes in the lyric poetry he loves so much. In 1198, when Francis is 16, the burghers of Assisi storm the fortress Rocca Maggiore. The castle is the center and symbolic seat of the nobility, who rule the region under the auspices of the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II. The Pope, Innocent III, intervenes, not to help his nemesis Emperor Frederick, but to capture the duchy for himself and add it to the Papal States. The successful annexation of the region by the papacy incites the burghers to ransack the castle and kill any nobles who hadn't already died or fled to nearby Perugia. As burghers themselves, Francis and his family would have participated in the rebellion, which is a bid by the middle class for independence from feudal obligations to bishops and counts. Francis would have likely relished the prospect of fighting. Although I wonder if his true sympathies lie with his fellow merchants or with the aristocrats. Skirmishes continue for the next couple of years, until the aristocrats who escaped to Perugia return in November of 1200. It doesn't end well for Assisi. Hundreds are slaughtered. An 18-year-old Francis is one of the lucky ones. He's captured and thrown into a prison in Perugia. Francis languishes in the dungeon for about a year until his father negotiates his ransom. Emaciated and suffering from malaria, an infection that will never go away, Francis returns home and is bedridden for nearly 12 months. Francis himself is, as always, quite cryptic on the long period of convalescence, 
He writes later only, quote, I was very frail. By the year 1204, Francis is on the mend. Pietro and Pica are hopeful that Francis, having almost died, will now change his ways and live a respectable life, properly learn his father's trade, and take over the business. Finally, back on his feet, a recovered Francis makes it very clear he has no interest in doing this whatsoever. He clings ever more tightly to ambitions of chivalric glory and material success. Against his parents' wishes, he joins a local nobleman headed to Puglia, a jumping-off point on the Adriatic coast for crusaders bound for Constantinople and the Holy Land. The plan is to rally to the side of a dashing aristocratic knight, Walter of Brienne. Walter of Brienne is a celebrity crusader, immortalized in the short story collection The Decameron as the Duke of Athens. Brienne is every 12th century teenager's hero. Francis is convinced that it's at Walter of Brienne's side he'll earn fame and fortune and finally join Europe's elite. Francis prepares for the journey by kitting himself out with the most fashionable attire and gear. If he's going to become an aristocratic knight, he's going to look like one. The night before his departure, Francis declares to his loved ones, I know that I will become a great prince. That same night, Francis has a vision. While Francis was asleep, a man appeared who called him by name and led him into a vast and pleasant palace in which the walls were hung with glittering coats of mail, shining bucklers and all the weapons and armour of warriors. Francis was delighted and, reflecting on what could be the meaning of all this, he asked for whom the splendid arms and beautiful palace were intended, and he received the answer that they were for him and his knights. This account of the vision comes from the legend of the Three Companions. An earlier biography of Francis, written in 1228 by a follower named Thomas of Celano, adds the detail that a beautiful fiancée is part of the splendor. Francis interprets the bride as a promise he'll enter into the ranks of nobility through marriage. The arsenal of military hardware is a sure sign of victory and glory. Bolstered by the vision, Francis leaves for Puglia in the morning. Here's another passage from Spato's book. It's an anecdote that demonstrates Francis's newfound confidence. Or is it delusion? So convinced was he that there would be no return to his old life after the achievement of his nightly quest, Francis made a grand gesture, a generous one, but also theatrically self-indulgent. An older knight was then returning to Assisi, poor, dejected, and wearing only the tattered remnants of his once-glorious uniform. With a great flourish, Francis gave the knight the fine garments he had accumulated. About 20 miles south of Assisi, barely a half-day's ride from home, Francis falls deathly ill. It's a recurrence of the malaria he had contracted whilst in Perugia. Francis's companion has no choice but to leave the disappointed young man at a hotel before departing for glory with Walter of Brienne alone. Thank you so very much for listening to Saint Podcast. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting us on Patreon. For as little as the cost of a cup of coffee every month, your patronage will help keep Saint Podcast going, as well as unlock access to bonus episodes, a behind-the-scenes peek at what we do, and free Saint Podcast merchandise as part of your support. 
head to www.patreon.com forward slash Saint Podcast. As always, Saint is spelled out. S-A-I-N-T. Thanks again for listening. Francis's pursuit of wealth and glory have come to nothing. Whilst convalescing at the hotel, he has another vision, this time a waking vision. A voice asks him who might be better placed to provide rewards for good deeds, the master or the servant. Francis answers, the master. The voice replies, then why do you leave the master for the servant, the rich lord for the poor man? Francis is totally confused. The heavenly voice explains. Return to your place and you will be told what to do. You must interpret your vision in a different sense. The arms in the palace you saw are intended for other knights than those you had in your mind, and your principality too will be of another order. According to the mysterious voice, God himself, Francis had misinterpreted the vision from the night before leaving for Puglia. If the richly furnished arsenal isn't a portent of material glory, what does it all mean? This is the question that turns over and over in Francis's mind as he makes the journey home. It's now spring of 1205. Francis is back in Assisi, living with mom and dad. He still sees his friends, though less frequently, because most of them are now working, taking over their father's estates and businesses. Others have gone abroad to fight the battles Francis had yearned to fight, and many more are married with adult obligations. Having nothing to do but still flush with his parents' money, Francis makes a pilgrimage to Rome. The squalid conditions and the ubiquity of the homelessness moves him, and he gives away everything he has, even some of his expensive clothes. Once back home, Francis encounters a leper whilst riding. Whereas he had previously avoided anyone of a lesser status than himself, something in the leper affects Francis, just like the scores of homeless people in Rome. He dismounts, hands the man a coin, and kisses the leper's hand. This act is quite extraordinary. Lepers are some of the most feared and reviled people of Francis's time. They're rounded up like animals into camps that are essentially prisons where they're mistreated or at best ignored. Whilst their misunderstood illness elicits sympathy from some, the prevailing judgment is that the afflicted brought the illness upon themselves. Even senior officials of the church in Rome view leprosy as a punishment for sin. Later in life, St. Francis would write a document we call the Testament that records how very important this chance meeting with a leper is to him. A few days later, Francis brings a bag of money to a leper hospital. He spends hours comforting the inmates, holding their hands, embracing them. A generous person might donate money to a leper hospital like Francis does, but no one would dream of entering the hospital, or, God forbid, touching a leper. Francis spends most of his days now on missions of mercy, giving money to the poor and caring for lepers. The acts of charity mark an irrevocable change in the young man, but the Francis we know who means well and doesn't make good decisions is still there. Keep in mind that all of the money Francis gives away to the poor is his father's money. One day, whilst on an errand for his father, 
Francis takes shelter in a dilapidated church outside of town called San Damiano. The building is barely standing. The only bit that isn't falling apart is a crucifix on an altar. As Francis approaches, the Christ figure on the cross miraculously speaks. Francis, do you not see that my house is falling to ruin? Go, therefore, and repair the house out of love for me. Francis interprets the command from God literally. He hastens to the market town Foligno, where he pawns expensive bolts of fabric he had only just procured for his father. Francis then changes into a peasant smock and sells the designer clothes he just had on. And finally, he sells the horse he rode in on. Returning to San Damiano, Francis offers the small fortune to the bewildered priest, who flatly refuses it. The priest knows Francis's father, Pietro, and knows the son by reputation. There's no way the young man obtained all this money honestly, and he suspects Francis is drunk again. Unable to convince the priest to take the bag of money, Francis throws it onto a ledge and storms off. Not home, but to the underground grotto in one of his father's many properties, where he hides out for days. Once word of what Francis has just done gets back to his dad, there will be hell to pay. Pietro eventually tracks down his son. At his wit's end, he drags Francis to the court of the city of Assisi to officially disown him. But the municipal authorities have no desire to get in the middle of a family squabble. Their ruling is that this is the church's problem. After all, the offense occurred at San Damiano. Some versions of St. Francis's hagiography say his father then takes him home and imprisons him in the cellar. Heartbroken, Pico frees her son when Pietro leaves for another business trip. When Pietro returns, he finds a filthy Francis living in a cave. The hagiographies meet up at this point. Following the city court's ruling, Pietro takes his son to the bishop, Guido I. This is what Bishop Guido has to say. Your father is highly incensed and greatly scandalized by your conduct. If, therefore, you wish to serve God, you must first of all return him his money, which indeed may have been dishonestly acquired. God would not wish you to use it for restoring the church through sin on the part of your father, whose anger will abate when he gets the money back. Trust in the Lord, my son, and act manfully, fearing nothing, for he will help you and provide you with all that is necessary for repairing the church. Bishop Guido's ruling is quite fair. Francis agrees to give back the money, which is still on the ledge at San Damiano where he threw it. But he takes it several steps further to relinquish his inheritance and family name. Francis, who had, for the first time in months, washed, shaved, and dressed to appear before the bishop, takes off all his clothes, announcing that everything he has, including what he's wearing, belongs to his parents and are part of a life he now wants nothing to do with. Standing stark naked before Bishop Guido, Francis places himself under the protection of the church. An undressed St. Francis standing before Bishop Guido was once a popular subject in art. The renowned 14th century artist Giotto painted this scene twice first in the Basilica of St. Francis in Assisi, then again at the Bardi Chapel in Florence. Both frescoes show a bishop who hastily wraps his vestments around a naked youth. 
Another painter, the 15th century Sassetta, also includes Francis taking off his clothes in a St. Francis altarpiece at the National Gallery in London. What I find interesting in this painting is Francis's father, Pietro. He's clearly enraged. Francis has just stripped naked, and his clothes are in a pile at his father's feet. Pietro's associates physically hold him back from attacking his son in anger. Look out for this Sassetta painting the next time you're at the National Gallery in London. And there's another reason to visit this museum. The National Gallery in London is planning the first major art exhibition in the UK to explore the life and legacy of St. Francis of Assisi next spring from the 6th of May to the 30th of July, 2023. The exhibition presents the art and imagery of St. Francis from the 13th century till today. If you're planning to be in London in 2023, make time to check it out. A link to the exhibition information will be on the St. Podcast website. In the meantime, links to the artworks just mentioned are also on the website, www.saintpodcast.com. Saint is spelled out. Aside from the rage on Pietro's face from the Sassetta painting, we don't know how Francis's parents react. They disappear entirely from the story once Bishop Guido takes in the naked Francis. There's no recorded reconciliation, no surviving correspondence between Francis and his parents at all. From the moment Francis relinquishes all ties to his old life, he never looks back. Francis spends the next two years in prayer and work. He focuses on the command from God to rebuild his house. The restoration of San Damiano and a neglected St. Peter Chapel nearby fill his days. The Church of St. Mary of the Angels is another building Francis helps to restore. It stands on a small parcel of abandoned land that local monks called Portsucle, or Little Portion, as in a little portion of land. This restored church would eventually become a base for Francis and come to be known as Portiuncula. Once repairs at Portiuncula have been completed, a mass is held with Francis in attendance. According to hagiographies, the priest reads a passage from the New Testament describing Jesus' instructions to his twelve apostles when he sends them out to preach penance, the need to repent for one's sins. Take no gold or silver or copper in your belts, no bag for your journey, nor tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff. Since placing himself under the protection of the church, Francis has been wearing the outfit of a hermit. The rules of St. Benedict from the 6th century had set standards for hermits and monks. As per the rule, Francis owns two tunics, a staff, a leather belt, and a pair of sandals. After hearing this passage, Francis decides to follow Jesus' instructions to the letter and live not like a monk or a hermit, but like the apostles, who leave on their mission with virtually nothing.
Francis only keeps one filthy tunic. He exchanges the leather belt for a frayed rope and gives away everything else. From this moment on, Francis lives a life of poverty. He overcomes a revulsion to eating slightly rotting food obtained from begging. He gets used to sleeping in the rough, on dirty floors, and often outside. Fashion isn't something that even crosses his mind anymore. Quite radically, Francis completely rejects his former life as a hedonist and materialist for the life of a poverello, someone who is homeless and exists on basic subsistence and in abject poverty. Francis also takes up Jesus's call to preach penance. After finishing whatever menial work he had planned for the day, the poverello wanders about, urging those he encounters to repent. He greets everyone with, "The Lord give you peace." It's quite difficult for people from the 21st century to understand just how unusual this greeting is. The culture of 13th century Europe doesn't have much room for peace. War and conflict are constant and part of nearly everyone's daily life. Francis's declaration of peace is most often met with suspicion. As a result, the poverello becomes sort of a sideshow. Citizens of Assisi visit Portiuncula to witness for themselves the antics of a wealthy merchant's son who's clearly gone mad. In March of 1208, a young man named Bernard of Quintavalle calls on Francis with a friend, Peter of Catania. Bernard and Peter are the men the old Francis wished he could be, blue-blooded sons of nobility. Francis captivates Bernard, who invites the poverello to his grand palazzo. The three young men spend the entire night at the palazzo discussing Francis's newfound calling. The night ends with a hypothetical question posed by Bernard: What might someone do if they had feudal property they no longer wanted? Francis answers that any unwanted material possessions ought to be returned to their original owner. Bernard acknowledges that it's God who granted him the fortune of being born into a landed family. Everything he owns ultimately belongs to God. Therefore, all of his unwanted property should be returned to the church. The next morning, Bernard, Peter, and Francis meet at the Church of San Nicolo in Assisi's main square to donate Bernard's fortune. They enter the church and pray. Then seek further guidance by randomly opening the missal to three passages. Matthew chapter nineteen verse twenty-one: If you wish to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. Luke chapter nine verse three: Take nothing for your journey. Matthew chapter sixteen verse twenty-four: If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. That very day, Peter and Bernard join Francis at Portiuncula and begin selling their possessions. A week later, an eighteen-year-old named Giles becomes the third to join. According to the legend of the three companions, Sabatino, Morico, and John of Capella are the next recruits. By the end of 1208, Francis has eleven followers in total. The men live together in a hovel not far from Portiuncula. It's less a permanent home, though, than a base. 
Two by two, Francis's followers leave on preaching tours with a simple message of peace and penance. They tend to the repairs and maintenance of local churches, work for food and shelter, and as a last resort, beg when no work can be found. Then they return to Portiuncula before heading out once again. Director Franco Zeffirelli released a biopic about St. Francis in 1972 called Brother Sun, Sister Moon. The title is a reference to an ode to nature and creation Francis would write towards the end of his life. We'll discuss the hymn in more detail in part two of this episode. The film is a beautifully shot, if simplistic, depiction of Francis's early years. We see an unshaven, bedridden Francis tormented by malaria, whilst fever-induced flashbacks hint at ill-fated attempts at glory on the battlefield. Much of the film centers on Francis relinquishing his family name and inheritance, stripping naked before Bishop Guido, then abandoning Assisi for Portiuncula. We also meet the young aristocrats from Francis's Brigata. In the beginning of the film, they're dressed as cavaliers and gentlemen. Towards the end, one by one leave their wealth and privilege behind to join the Pavarello. The film takes a number of creative liberties with Francis's legend, although most surviving historic documents contradict each other anyway. Nevertheless, Brother Sun, Sister Moon paints an evocative picture of a young Francis who's lost, then found, and the congenial spirit of brotherhood that bonded the early followers. The soundtrack features original songs by Scottish musician Donovan. The folky music adds a hippie flavor to the film's depiction of an idyllic Italian countryside that nurtures and revives Francis and his first followers. The period covered by the film is a golden age for the Twelve Men, and they develop into something quite unique. Their itinerant lifestyle sets them apart from other religious movements. Their strict observance of poverty is also unique in that none own anything except one tunic. When this one tunic falls apart, followers remain naked until a replacement can be procured through work or begging. Other religious movements also prohibit the personal ownership of property, but the collective organization holds on to wealthy members' lands and assets, making most religious orders and the abbots who run them incredibly rich. Perhaps the most shocking element of Francis's organization is that men from different social strata live together at Portiuncula as equals. Monastic orders like the Cistercians, founded about a hundred years earlier, separate monks who come from titled families from the commoners. Different rules are imposed on each class, and also on those who are ordained priests. An educated, high-born recruit is never expected to cook or do chores of any kind. The monks who are commoners perform all the menial work, while noble sons pray, compose music, or copy manuscripts. The cells or rooms of aristocratic monks are also more comfortable, larger and better appointed than the small spaces inhabited by working-class monks. These hierarchies do not exist in Francis's community. Everyone works. Everyone begs when necessary. No one has more than anyone else because everyone has nothing. Francis and his brothers aren't monks or priests, at least not yet. 
None of the first recruits have any theological training. None have been ordained as clerics. They aren't affiliated officially with the church. They're just a bunch of guys who share a life of work, prayer, and poverty. They have no formal structure, and unlike monks, they don't lead lives of seclusion. They wander about to preach. And the preaching they do isn't theological like the sermons of a priest. As laypersons untrained by the church, they aren't allowed to preach in this way. The uniqueness of Francis's lifestyle makes him and his followers easy targets. A St. Francis hagiography we refer to as Anonymous Perugia describes how those the brothers encounter generally, quote, show them disdain and greet them with derision. Some even spit at the brothers and throw rocks and mud to drive them out of town. Loved ones of new recruits regularly disrupt Portiuncula, desperate to convince their brothers, their sons, their friends to return home. Church officials in Assisi are also very wary of the growing band of outliers. Bishop Guido is particularly critical of the severe austerity practiced by the Pavarello. Francis's reply to Guido's disapproval is radical. My lord, if we had goods, it would be necessary for us to have weapons to defend ourselves, for it is over riches that arguments and court battles derive. It is this that creates so many obstacles to the love of God. Thus, we do not want to possess any temporal goods in this world. To modern ears, Francis's rebuttal sounds like socialism. Against all odds, these radical ideas find footing with enough people that the community continues to grow, and quickly. It's this success, however, that heralds the end of the Golden Age. Thank you so much for listening to part one of episode four in our mystic series, St. Francis, the Wayward Mystic. If you enjoy our show, please support us on Patreon. Your patronage will help keep St. Podcast going, as well as give you access to bonus episodes, a behind-the-scenes peek at what we do, and also exclusive St. Podcast merchandise included in your support. Head to www.patreon.com forward slash St. Podcast for details. For images of the artworks, people, and topics mentioned, head to the St. Podcast website www.saintpodcast.com. Saint is spelled out S-A-I-N-T. You'll notice there's a new shop section on the website. Currently, there are four bag designs and a mug. Have a look. New designs will be added throughout the year. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates. And please email us at feedback at saintpodcast.com if you have comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes. Big thanks for Louis Stowell in London, who provided the readings for this episode. Louis is the author of the Loki, A Bad God's Guide series. Follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Louis Stowell, L-O-U-I-E-S-T-O-W-E-L-L. We're excited to have Louis be a part of this episode because her father, an early supporter of St. Podcast, is named Francis. Thank you so much, Frank, for all the encouragement when I first started. All the original music was composed and performed by my friend Stephen Vesecki, a musician and maths teacher in Los Angeles. Have a listen to Stephen's music on his SoundCloud page. The link is on our website. 
Stay tuned for part two of St. Francis, the Wayward Stigmatic.